PhD Futures Now, a podcast on collaboration, career diversity, and graduate education in the humanities. This podcast is a project of Humanities Without Walls, a 16-university consortium headquartered at the Humanities Research Institute at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and funded by grants from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Welcome to episode four of PhD Futures Now. I'm Deepti Murali, the producer of the podcast, and I'm here to introduce our three special speakers in this episode. Our host is Dr. Antoinette Burton. She's the PI of HWW, and our guests are two of the HWW Predoctoral Career Diversity Fellowship Workshop alumni. Lisa Betty, who's a student at Fordham University, and Timothy Emmanuel Brown, who is now the incoming professor uh, for bioethics at University of Washington. When we recorded this podcast earlier this year, Tim was the postdoctoral scholar, so um, he will refer to his experiences as a postdoc and as a graduate student in the course of our conversation here. This episode is a special one because this is our very first episode looking at the lived realities and experiences of graduate students in higher education, particularly black graduate students. And so we are very honored and privileged to have Lisa and Tim share their experiences so candidly with us in this episode. So thank you for being here. And now over to Antoinette Burton, the host for episode four. So the first question that I wanted to ask is the following. Equity, inclusion, anti-racism, social justice. These are watchwords in certain spaces of higher education in the US today. Tell us what you hear when you hear these words. If I can go first, um, I think it depends on the context, right? So there are so many different contexts within higher education where you might hear these words. And depending, they might be lip service. They might be um, honest, good faith efforts to think about the way institutes of higher education have harmed marginalized communities. Um, They might be misguided, misused, um, or they may be certain kinds of code switching for some students. You know, there are so many different contexts. So I would say it really depends. Um, But for me, um, if somebody is using these words in good faith, it means that they at least recognize that there are problems that marginalized people face within these institutions, within institutions of higher education. Um, And that doesn't necessarily, you know, indicate that they have a commitment to things like anti-racism or anti-sexism or inclusion, um, but at least it indicates that they've heard of the problem. And that's more than I'm used to. <laughs> um, things have been pretty bad for a long time, but at least people are starting to understand that there are problems. At least some people are. Thanks. Lisa? So for me, I'm more skeptical. <laughs> um, and I am because uh, I, th- I see these 
specifically uh, these the, these watchwords that are used, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, social justice, kind of go in tandem to like microaggression, stereotype threat. They're just a part of the narrative that is produced. These are the words you use when you're trying to clean up an incident or a mess that has just occurred. Um, so when I hear these words from uh, the human resources departments at, at you know, institutions, higher education institutions, the provost, the president's office, or even the diversity, um, equity, and inclusion offices. That's just kind of code word for something happened, and we're trying to act quickly <laughs> um, as possible so, so it doesn't get out of hand. It's also, um, uh, so I do see it as rhetoric, but it's also rhetoric attached to um a lack of accountability because you have students for decades from the 60s and 70s in particular when integration was a part of the, the somewhat a part of the status quo in higher education. Um, that students of color or the most marginalized students have been um, addressing these issues. And I think only from the 1960s and 70s, that's the height of when some sort of accountability was occurring. From then, I don't see any significant, to be honest, any significant changes. Um, so for the height of equity, inclusion, anti-racism, social justice, those right now, those are just, that's just rhetoric because the real progress that was made is like 19, 1968, 1969, you know, 1971, some of these ethnic studies departments were created or scholarships created. But after that, I'm just seeing a lot of just cleanup. So for me, when I hear that from HR, from uh, administration, it's it's something happened and it's it's quick cleanup. Thanks. Um, I think it is a kind of nomenclature. It's a vocabulary that we know has um, been assimilated into a variety of institutions, including and especially higher higher ed, because uh, for people who are really invested in in reanimating those. Uh, terms and operationalizing them, actualizing them for social change, it's important to be reminded that to many ears, they sound empty or cynical or um, like appropriations. So I appreciate that. What are some of the impediments that hinder movement toward actually dismantling structural inequality and making academia a space where Black people women and people of color, and first and family PhD students, PhD students, among other kinds of uh, students, feel that they rightfully belong? What, what, what is the beginning of that conversation in your mind, in your view? Well, honestly, I think that one of the impediments is a, a kind of aversion to concrete action. I think, yeah, when I said earlier that words like equity, inclusion, anti-racism, and uh, social justice, and many, many, many others can be a kind of lip service. Um, it's usually because the words stop there. They stop at being words, right? And so we'll talk about anti-racism. And honestly, we haven't really been, I, I haven't really seen people talk about anti-racism until fairly recently, um, at least in those administrative spaces. Um, but when we talk about anti-racism, it has to come with anti-racist acts. It cannot be in the abstract. So, for example, if we're putting together a panel or a committee or something like that, 
it cannot be an all white panel and an all straight panel and an all male panel. It can't be, um, not in 2021. Um, when we're putting together um, curriculum for classes, it can't. Th- that curriculum cannot just be old white men, as uh, we see a lot in philosophy. You know, a history of philosophy course is usually just, you know, Plato recounting Socrates. <laughs> um, you know, it's just historical figures that are all white and male, and that cannot be the case going forward. Um, and so in, in my own, you know, brushes with different organizations, these organizations are still, you know, white and male. And so that means hiring people and then supporting those people and then making sure they succeed and making sure they're paid and feel fulfilled. Right. So those kinds of things, concrete actions that change or terraform the communities, or creating new ones and then dismantling the old ones, <laughs> new institutions entirely. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, for me, it would be first uh, these institutions um, really kind of um, grounding in the fact that they are colonial institutions, they are white supremacist institutions from from the exception. And they've only been inclusive for the past 50 years. So it's like they have to really, 50, 50, really inclusive, we'll say the 70s, even though 60s you had some of the the first classes that are coming in in large numbers. Um, So for one, that this is something that's new, um, for them, they're, they're, mo- they're, they're used to being segregated institution, white only um, and majority male. So that's the first thing that they have to know that they're not good at this. <laughs> Their institutions are the opposite of um, inclusion, equity, anti-racism, belonging, social justice inherently. Um, so, you know, 50 years out of a 400 year history, say for a place like Harvard or 300, 200 year history is not very long. So, I think that's the first thing. The other thing, um, even when these institutions have said, yeah, we've been white supremacist, um, colonial, and these are the ways that we um, have been a part of, uh, been a part of, part of that type of space, either if it was through chattel slavery or all of these types of things, um, they'll, there's no accountability. They'll do the most bare minimum thing to, appease uh, people in that moment. And then as things kind of simmer down, and then maybe even the people who were agitating um, are even quelled either, um, you know, oppressively by telling that person they may need to leave, not giving that person tenure or or the different ways or students who are threatened, it, it could be oppressively, or by way of just giving them personal or interpersonal concessions, like supporting them in particular types of ways um, to not agitate for systemic change. Um, There's a lack of accountability. So I I think there's um, a lot of just untruthfulness and um, that, that happens when these situations of, 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 pushing for systemic change within academia and higher education happens where we, we're not really privy to the actual 
system because there is a lot of trauma and harm that happens uh, to make sure that people acculturate to um, the culture of the academy and the culture of higher ed. Lisa, let's ask, I'm going to ask you to, to kind of pivot onto this next question, which is connected. Um, have you faced some of these impediments that you've described personally? And if so, how have you navigated them if you're willing to talk about it? Or um, if you want to generalize uh, in some of the ways that you did earlier in your in your earlier response, whatever you feel comfortable with. I'm really open you know, with my institution that I don't really respect the way that they treat um, Black people, they treat, um, you know, just uh, poor people, <laughs> whether if it's working class people that are in the Bronx, I'm in Ford, I'm at Ford, I'm having me come into, and I'm just being very frank, having me come into a history department that didn't really know what to do with me. And because I've worked in administration from the, from the time I got out of college when I was 22, I was really just like, this is, this is, this is a circus. Like, this is not how, how I treated doctoral students that I supported um, as a faculty assistant and coordinating programming. So I didn't really understand that what I was dealing with was um, um, maybe pieces of tokenism, maybe, um, you know, I can't really, th I can't really think about how people are, um, uh, see me coming in an institution, what they think that they can, how they think they can support me. But it, it felt like they wanted me to be lost and just go away. But the reason why I'm getting my PhD has absolutely nothing to do with me attempting to be a part of the academy. It's, it's a lot more than that. So I had to, I had to navigate differently. I appreciate that candor. Um, I think we really need to hear that kind of um, honesty and frankness and institutional critique. Uh, Tim, I don't know if there's anything in there you want to echo or whether you want to take us in a different direction, whatever, um, whatever you want to do in terms of how you've navigated this, these issues yourself. I would say that my experience is similar. Um, you know, I did my my graduate work in two different places. Um, I did some of my early graduate work in uh, at the University of California, Santa Cruz, um, about an MA's worth of work, and that was an that was an experience. That's also where I did my undergraduate work. So I was familiar with with the context, um, the university. It tries to have uh, its fingers in social justice issues, but it's not clear how much they're recognizing the day-to-day -day struggles of its graduate students. But also, um, I'm a philosopher by trading, and philosophy is historically white, as I mentioned earlier, and historically male, um, and dismissive of anything that doesn't fit within a very narrow focus of of a, a pretty well-maintained philosophical canon. Um, and so no matter what uh, you do in philosophy, you'll always be compared to uh, a very small core of white male philosophers. And that's been a challenge throughout the entire my entire time in graduate school. Um, and so that means that I've never had a black professor. That means that the administration is mostly white. 
Um, and the folks that you interact with are people doing, like Lisa said earlier, uh, you know, cleanup for some catastrophe that's happened in the past. And it, it means that you're extremely limited in what you can think or, or say uh, with regard to your own identity um, in ways that are, are, are really difficult to navigate, right? And so um, from the very beginning, where I applied to as a graduate student or as a graduate student moving between departments had to be very well calculated. I had to be very careful about how to present myself. And that, that um, created a kind of difficult to navigate internal dialogue um, and that's that's always been difficult for me. So am I being too black? Am I being too male? Because black men are evil <laughs> as far as they're concerned. They're dangerous. Um, or at least defiant. That's the 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 bad the bad D words. Um, and so I have to be very careful, usually, about how I present myself. And that's kind of why I'm really interested in concrete ways forward, because because it seems like a lot of the people that that were trying to be helpful couldn't be helpful because they didn't know. Um, I'm going to use a philosophical term, um, um, acrasia, right? This weakness of the will. It felt like they had weak wills and they didn't know how to overcome uh, the, the kinds of white supremacy that were laden into their institutions, laden into their intellectual frameworks, or didn't know how to reach out to the, to the resources that were on campus. And we had, you know, that other campuses didn't, um, but they were also trying to play clean up. Right. So, so this, this, this has been a pretty difficult matter for me. And it means that now I'm, thinking more about social justice as a part of my work. So thank you as well for sharing that. I think um, it resonates uncannily with what Lisa has been saying. And if we were to think about um, kind of benefiting our audience, our listeners benefiting from those experiences, if that's not too um, terrible a thing to say, um, what, what advice would you give uh a person of color, uh, a black person, a black woman, uh, who's coming into a PhD in the humanities in 2021, uh, what would you say to them, uh, either by way of advice or warning or counsel? I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily have any, um, warnings because if you're at that point where you want to do a PhD or move move further in your your education any type of way, it's very it's a very personal decision that has. Um, and if you're at the intersections of uh, different um, marginalized and even you know uh, interesting and you know um, survivor and all of these types of identities. Um, that um, you just have to stay on course. And that's the most important part. And sometimes you're not going to be light. So it's also learning what, what uh, the academy is, is about. So just, you know, take the experience as the, the, the 
the PhD experience or the graduate student experience as a, a learning experience. Um, um, for one, and, and to even know if you want to engage with the academy in that way. That's why HWW is so important. So it's like, do I want to engage within the academy in this way? Because I see some of the um, issues within the academy that do not work for me at all. Um, another thing I would say is have a persona outside of the academy. Um, I uh, have not been published by an academic journal. I have not been published by, by um, you know, any type of academic, even, you know, mainstream blog or however, but I published myself um, through, me, my, uh, you know, the Medium platform. And I have um, my, you know, academic work uh, on Black immigration out there. I have, um, and, you know, academic work on just, you know, Harriet Tubman, but then I also have, um, important work that I do that's somewhat outside of history that's critically thinking about white supremacy, that's thinking about white feminism, that's thinking about all these different um, issues within social movements that have marginalized um, the most liberatory and radical thinkers at the either the fringe of those movements or at the alternatives of those movements. So thinking about that, and I couldn't do that within the framework of of history um, in the history department at Fordham, but I have done it outside of Fordham. And it was kind of my experience within Fordham that made me be critical of, of certain things that I was seeing, um, um, feeling in the way that I was being and even being seen within that space that allowed me to, you know, understand and just do my own investigative <laughs> personal <laughs> ethnographic anthropo anthropological um, research on like, what's wrong with this place? Then also no hard feelings because everyone is attempting um, to survive the academy in a particular type of way. And uh, so I can't be, I can't take anything personally. Mm -hmm. So I think putting yourself outside those institutions and then publishing and writing and creating a persona outside of those institutions. I've seen particularly so many people of marginalized identities do that. Um, not until March did I actually use my professional Instagram in a particular type of way. I only had maybe like a hundred followers and those people that I knew in the social justice space that I've worked in the nonprofit social justice space. And then now I have like 7,000 and I just post the things that I actually you know, that I really believe in in a different spaces that I'm a part of. Although I work on the Caribbean diaspora and the English and Spanish speaking Caribbean, I'm talking about food assets, sustainability, decolonization, white supremacy, all of those spaces, um, education, language, linguistics, because I have found expertise in a lot of those spaces, mostly because trying to figure out where the reason why I was being treated or marginalized in a particular space. So I, I just had to be um different and I had to see okay what are how are what are other um, people who have a similar presentation you know black femme da da da, da, da um, working class um you know um, you know a part of these institutions a part of social justice movements a part of maybe sustainability movements how are they mo moving and maneuvering um, these institutions and I think they just find 
communities within themselves um, and, and like-minded people, but then they also create platforms for themselves. They create websites for themselves. They create podcasts for themselves. Um, and I think that's where the Academy is falling behind. Thank you. Um, I'm going to turn our conversation a little bit toward uh, career diversity, since this is um, part of our consideration on this podcast turning also if i can jump in is there any way i can add on to what lisa just said yes absolutely go ahead so first of all i wanted to say that everything that lisa mentioned is like great advice um i also want to acknowledge that um white supremacy and the structures of it and uh the 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 ongoing uh, colonization of of academia. Um, these forces turn inward, and they make it very hard for us to live in these spaces, in academic spaces. And so I kind of wanted to offer some advice for dealing with that internal struggle. So one of the things that I think is important is to just realize that you are enough and that your contributions matter. A philosopher, Maisha Cherry, builds on Audre Lorde's notion that anger is a tool for unmaking oppression, for criticism, for all of the things that we want to do in the academy. And that if someone tells you that you're a little angry or you're a little bit, um, that you're a little bit uh, defiant, those are good things. Lean into those things. That means you're doing something right even if you don't get the validation of a community telling you that those things are right. And of course that can be a slog. That can be so difficult to not get that confirmation that you're doing the right thing, but just know that it's the right thing. And so I just wanted to put that out there that if, if you can't make it work right now, it might work one day. So persist and um, don't let them talk you out of it. Don't let them convince you that you're doing the wrong thing. What you said earlier, you are enough, I think is yes. so profound and um, recentering and um, mindful of self-sufficiency in all kinds of ways. Thank you for that. Um, so as I said, I wonder if we could talk about career diversity and, but uh, career diversity is in many ways an extension of higher education, of the higher education enterprise in the U.S. That is to say, it's part of larger Eurocentric traditions, and it's embedded in the same systemic inequalities that are characteristic of the Western Academy itself. So what can people working in career diversity initiatives like HWW do to decolonize or dismantle that project? And I mean, I use those words intentionally. Uh, decolonize and dismantle, even as I recognize, apropos of our earlier conversation, that they're in danger of being just words. How should we think uh, in an anti-racist, uh, uh, pro-Black, pro-Indigenous, pro-women, pro-trans, LGBT way in this space in more with more than just words? I think the only fear that I have when sometimes with um, career diversity, um, specifically with PH, people with PhDs or people with, um, you know, uh, an array of pedigrees coming into certain spaces in which were kind of community designed 
and allowed for uh, an array of candidates and leaders with, um, you know, not a PhD, um, maybe a bachelor's or maybe even not higher education or not as much higher education is that these, you know, um, people with PhDs will then replace people that have 20 years of experience or 15 years of experience, particularly for community-based organizations um, or um, organizations that are um, represent marginalized identities in particular like social justice and, and um, you know, um, nonprofit spaces, nonprofit advocacy spaces. That is a real, um, that's a, that's a, it's a real thing because when the job market is going to, which it is now, squeeze people out of the academy. Their first, um, the first place that they're going to want to go is to these social justice institutions, especially if if their work is geared towards that, um, or their work is geared towards ethnic studies or or studying communities that have been marginalized systemically. So that's that's kind of the 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 biggest a um, thing I see. So it's it's about understanding um, just because the job sounds good it is the job for you <laughs> meaning is there someone else that could be better that is better fitted more community grounded that can you know be do this do this work I think that's one of the most important part for career diversities to come in knowing that there is intersectional marginalization in these spaces um, already. So you don't want to create um, or add to or be complicit in additional marginalization, particularly if you're in, uh, you know, particularly if it's the social justice nonprofit um, you know, advocacy arena, because we already know there is a nonprofit industrial complex. So you have, you have particularly for me, Black scholars and people who um, have PhDs and MAs having to find work in other spaces and literally being, you know, having four roles um, in society, being um, educators within the, uh, you know, academy, but also within um, um, secondary and elementary education, just the education system writ large, um, being um, social justice activists and pioneers, being um, people that are part of creating economic systems, alternative economic systems and and um, support systems for the communities they're part of, and then scholars writing books, doing that. So I've always thought that um, my role within the society by getting a PhD is not necessarily um about me getting a tenure track position, never. Tim, did you want to respond to that question about career diversity and its outgrowth from these very Eurocentric, patriarchal, white supremacist institutions? Yeah, sure. But I'll I'll start by saying that I've always wanted to be a professor. <laughs> always, always wanted to be a professor. I was a kid. I was 12 years old, and I said, I want to be a professor. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know that you had to go and finish a bachelor's and then, you know, maybe get into a master's program and then not finish it, go to a PhD program and spend eight years on it. I didn't know. Um, but I knew I wanted to do that. And I knew that I knew no one who did that. Like, there was no one around me who had a PhD. Like, I didn't. 
I didn't have anyone to ask and no one in my community could correct me or warn me or give me guidance. Um, not even the teachers, right? You know, we were too busy thinking about the new metal detectors that were put up in front of the school to keep the gangs out, right? Or whatever, or keep them from bringing guns on campus at least. Um, and, you know, so, so that's, that's, that's a part of my history. And, um, and so in a lot of ways, I feel like I've been flirting with the idea of jumping ship from academia when I've been on the ship for so long that I've been on this ship for a long time. I got my PhD. I'm on the job market, the academic job market. It's a, it's, it's, it's exhilarating and uh, makes me feel very anxious. But uh, Humanities Without Walls gave me the opportunity to sort of uh, dip my toes into a lot of different um, possible careers, possible identities, pop- possible ex- expressions of my identities, um, and uh, to do that in a way that did lead me to trying to get a job at Microsoft at one point as part of uh, their ethics team um, in ways that made me a better mentor for students who weren't uh, philosophy students. Um, But, um, well, they were philosophy students, but they were also computer science students or med students, like pre-med students or so on and so forth, right? And so when I think of career diversity, I think of uh, a sort of intersectional approach, um, a collision of identities, intellectual identities, um, uh, gender identities, racialized identities, um, you know, uh, socioeconomic identities, and, and people shifting through those, becoming one thing rather than another, learning to express one thing rather than another. And then at the end of the day, trying to figure out what job fits them, right? And it's like being a complicated jigsaw puzzle in need, I mean, a jigsaw, uh, piece of a jigsaw puzzle looking for the right fit um, and then having to jam yourself in somewhere because there is no place um, or creating a new part of the puzzle to fit yourself into. That's That's how we should be thinking about career diversity as a diversity, like both kinds of diversity, like identity diversity and a diversity of jobs at the same time and trying to bring those together. Um, And I think that's where Humanities Without Walls was its strongest, right? Thank you. So we're coming to the end of our time. Unfortunately, there were lots of other questions I wanted to ask you, but if there was one thing um, that you could suggest for those of us you know, thinking about the future episodes of this podcast, uh, which is, you know, trying to envision the future of the humanities PhD, what would you like to see developed as a segment or an episode to follow up on some of the issues we've been talking about? Just one, one thing. I would say, um, really, um, talking about the student debt crisis, because I think, you know, uh, I have no citation or anything for this, but most of the, you know, student debt, a large amount of the student debt, you know, carriers are black women or women of color. So I have no citation. 
So, but um, I bet we could find one. So, yeah, easily just Google it. But um, so so that's also a problem because we're also fed um, within colonialism. There's assimilation and acculturation. So we're also fed a story that if you um, if you jump through these hoops and you do all this work and you get this paper, we will finally respect you and you will finally be able to live a substantial and positive life within our society. And that's a goddamn lie. <laughs> so, all you know, and it doesn't stop us. Uh, we still fully understand that lie, but it's kind of like you damn if you do, you damn if you don't. Um, especially if you're in that space where you do want access to the, the information and the networks and um, and the the quote unquote expertise. It's really the information, you know, these libraries and and accessing. Um, books and articles. Like, there's a lot of information you can get just from being affiliated with a higher education institution. So, uh, if you want to kind of navigate in that way, um, and, and even if you specifically if you come from a financially marginalized space, that may be your only way to to move to get to the next level. But I I think I think that. Um, the financial crisis that's attached to the PhD, because then there's a sense of failure and not even a imposter syndrome in the way that it's been put out, put forth, but an imposter syndrome within your own community. I have a PhD. Why am I struggling? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I have even, you know, an MD, you know, a, a MD. Why am I struggling? You know, they have people that are navigating and moving through higher ed in these particular types of ways and taking on a lot of debt and still struggling. So I think the student debt crisis definitely needs to be a part of this because with job, um, you know, with issues with, with getting positions and jobs and the anxiety around that. Thank you, Lisa. You put your finger on that um, perfectly. Tim. So um, on the flip side of Lisa's suggestion, I think there's um, a need to address issues of overwork within academic spaces, but also in spaces that you'll end up in if you're an academic or you have academic credentialing. Um, and this kind of overwork that we experience as people with marginalized identities uh, that intersect um, is is a little unique, right? It's not just, okay, the job is hard. There's a lot of workload, uh, a big workload. Um, it's the kind of things we experience from day one, right? I, I like how Lisa keeps saying not to, that keeps saying uh, passive aggressive aggression instead of, um, instead of microaggression. Uh, but one thing I'll add on the top of that is macroaggression. Like there are some macro level, meso level aggressions um, levied against us on day one, right? Like uh, just things that people say that are incendiary. And uh, depending on the identities you inhabit, right? They may be extremely difficult to navigate. Um, and this has a psychological toll. So ex for example, Think of what it is to be a black trans woman in academia at all, but in particular in philosophy, with 
people making arguments over whether or not you exist or ought to exist. Or, I mean, and this is an argument that people have made that trans women are just gay men who are confused. (sighs) It's just maddening. And to have to do the work of defending who you are and what you are and where you're positioned while at the same time being a support, a part of a support structure for other people who have similar identities, right? Uh, or people who are dealing with the same kinds of marginalization or the same kinds of macro aggressions against them. Um, being the mentor, being uh, the person who organizes the, um, the, the emergency conference against, you know, um, against Trumpism. That happened in my department. A lot of us folks who were worried about what Donald Trump's election back in 2016 uh, would mean for this country. And we saw <laughs> in great detail what it meant for this country. It means, you know, 400,000 people and counting dead, um, uh, a capital with excrement on the walls. Um, that's what it meant back then, but we were trying to digest it. Um, And so a lot of us got together to organize this panel discussion, this very concrete, concretized panel discussion. But who gets called on to do that kind of work? The people of color in the department. Um, And so when we talk about career diversity, we're also thinking about like, what is it like for us to be in these academic spaces? And what is it going to be like down the road when we end up in an alternative space or, like we may not be doing that direct advocacy work, but a lot of that work is going to fall on our laps. If we get jobs in industry, um, we're going to have junior colleagues that we have to navigate this also white supremacist space, but also sexist space with together, right? And then we're going to have to fight against administration. And if we become administration, there are going to be people below us who need our help. And that can burn us out really quickly. So how do we protect our time? How do we protect our mental health? How do we protect one another? How do we coexist? How do we not step on each other's toes? Um, How do we make the space into the kind of space where we can kind of relax every now and again without worrying about the macro and micro aggressions against us and the passive aggressive aggressions and all the aggressions? How How do we do that? Um, without without hurting ourselves, and what does self care mean? Even so, if I had one uh, suggestion, that would be it. Thank you so much um, for that, and thank you both for uh, sharing your insights and experiences, and um, reminding us of what's hiding in plain sight uh, in many cases, uh, and that we take that very seriously and we'll go forward with all these questions front of mind. So uh, thanks again. Thank you for joining this episode of PhD Futures Now. In the next four episodes, we bring to you professionals who have humanities PhDs, but who now work outside the academia. 
In episode 5, that is the next episode, we have Dr. Matthew Costello, Senior Historian at the White House Historical Association, who will talk to us about being a historian outside a university setting. Please join us for that episode in three weeks. Till then, please stay safe. Thank you.